Welcome to The Count of Three. My name is Susie Kennan, and I'm your host. And I'm your host, Kyle Ward. No one thinks it can happen to them or their family, but today we're talking about a topic that can affect each and every one of us, addiction and substance abuse. Our guest today is Jessica Leahy. She's a recovering alcoholic with nearly seven years of recovery. She has two boys with a genetic legacy of substance use disorder hanging over them. She's been a teacher for over 20 years, and for five years, she worked as a teacher in an inpatient drug and alcohol recovery center for adolescents. She's seen substance abuse disorder from the inside, as a parent, and as a teacher. Jessica writes for Education, Parenting, and Child Welfare for The Atlantic, The Washington Post, and The New York Times. She is the author of the New York Times bestselling book, The Gift of Failure, How the Best Parents Learn to Let Go So Their Children Can Succeed. And her latest book is titled The Addiction Inoculation. It is out now, and we highly recommend you go pick up a copy. Thank you so much for joining us today, Jess. Oh, thank you so much for having me. So talk about your background and what led you to write The Addiction Inoculation. I started teaching part-time in a drug and alcohol rehab for adolescents, and that was five of the best teaching experiences I've ever had, five years of the best teaching experience I've ever had. It's just, it was an incredible way, not only for me to give back to recovery, to, I was very much accountable to those kids for my own recovery, and it was just an incredible teaching challenge. It was very much all about engagement. I had to learn. And then on top of that, of course, I'm a mom. My kids are now 22 and 17. Back when I got sober, they were like nine and 14, somewhere in there. And honestly, for me, what I was most interested in was the answer to the question, you know, people talk about substance abuse is preventable. That's sort of the go-to thing that the experts say about it. And I wanted to know, what does that mean? And My favorite thing in the whole world to do is to have a question about something about education or kids or juvenile justice and then spend a couple of years researching it and then translating that research for other people. And luckily, I'm married to a statistician and a researcher himself. And so both of us just wanted to get to the bottom of these questions of what that means. And it was years in the making and so much fun to write. So, uh, you know, this really was the book. I love Gift of Failure, but this really was the book that I was I was born to write. It's sort of what has made, you know, all of the challenges and all of the yucky stuff I had to go through. This is definitely one of the things that has made that worth it. What steps are you taking as a mom to stop the cycle of addiction in your family? For me, being honest was number one, so important. And then getting sober and, you know, setting a really good example for my kids of dealing with sobriety, dealing with my issues around, you know, drinking, being sober. My husband, despite coming from a whole lot of genetics for substance abuse, actually is a totally normal, you know, not affected by those genetics drinker. So he can have a beer and pour out the rest and he's done. And so giving them a little bit of that example and also, you know, keeping it a part of the conversation all the time was the very first thing that we did in order to sort of get our kids on the right direction and break that cycle of the genetic predisposition. You know, there are a lot of risk factors you have to keep an eye out for. And the more risk factors you have, the more protections you sort of have to heap on your kids. But the obvious starting place has to be us. It has to be us dealing with our own stuff. So tell us about some of those risk factors that could predispose children to addiction. Sure. So obviously, we have the genetics, we have the epigenetics. And then, and I hate to use this analogy, but it's 
it's appropriate, it's apt. So a lot of people talk about genetics as the bullet in the gun and that it can sit there forever and never come out of the gun, but trauma is the trigger. So you can be all loaded up with, you know, all the genetics in the world, but if you don't have the trauma trigger, that's a good thing. It doesn't sort of get things off and running. Trauma, when we talk about ACEs or adverse childhood experiences, and I highly recommend a wonderful book called The Deepest Well by Nadine Burke Harris. She is now the Surgeon General of California. She's a pediatrician, and she talks about the role that ACEs play in her pediatrics practice in California. But Kaiser Permanente and the CDC did this huge survey looking back at what people had experienced during childhood and sort of what that meant in terms of their health outcomes. And it turns out that there's a list of, it's not just 10 things, but it's sort of 10 broad items on a quiz. And you can actually find out your own ACE score by Googling ACE quiz, CDC ACE quiz, and it'll come up. And you get a number from one to 10, depending on your score and depending on your experiences. And they include things like, you know, substance abuse in the home or neglect and abuse. And obviously, especially for women, childhood sexual abuse is a huge risk factor. So you take with that score and the higher your score, the more likely you are to be at risk for substance abuse. The Also, the more likely you are to be at risk for all kinds of mortality issues like, you know, heart disease and strokes and things like that, mental health issues. So so ACEs are a big part of the picture. And then there's also Nadine Burke Harris adds a whole bunch of extra adverse childhood experiences that are not on the CDC quiz. There's divorce and separation. There's adoption. There's a whole bunch of other sort of risk factors to talk about. Whenever I talk about that, I always have to pause and I have to say all of the writing I do about gift of failure and about the addiction inoculation, none of this is to make parents say, oh, the shame, I'm divorced or I adopted my child or who are you to say that my adopted kid is at risk because I love them so much and I chose them. None of this has anything to do with giving parents more worry, fear, guilt, shame. Everything about my work, I hope, is about giving parents power through information. So the more we understand about kids' risk factors, the more we can target the preventative factors. And other risk factors include academic failure, social ostracism, early aggression when kids are aggressive towards other kids. The problem is, is if we don't intervene early on those things, on especially things like the social ostracism and the aggression and the academic failure, they tend to tangle up with each other. And gets hard to tell sort of where the chicken and the egg are. So the earlier we intervene on adverse childhood experiences and other risk factors, the more likely we are to help kids be able to name their emotions, talk about that stuff, deal with the actual pain around the things rather than having to either feel like they have to numb it uh, rather than feeling less than because of that experience so that they don't feel like they have to go to some substance in order to feel better about themselves or to make that those the emotions around that thing go away. What are some best home practices that you would recommend in helping to prevent substance abuse? 
So I like to think of risk and prevention as like that old-timey scales of justice where the heavier your risk side is, then your prevention side is going to have to be, you know, is going to have to counterbalance that. For example, I talk in the book about the fact that we moved while my son was in a really delicate period of transition between middle school and high school. Transitions are a risky time for kids. It's a time when kids tend to pick up substances if they're going to. Summer is another one because they tend to be, you know, less super and hanging out together more with their friends and have more leisure time. So in order to sort of deal with the fact that, you know, I was heaping even more risk factors and more risky stuff on my kid during a tenuous time, you know, we started talking about ways to help him you know, adolescents tend to be really pulled towards novel and risky behaviors. And so we started helping my kid come up with ways to exert positive risk, to go out there into the world. In fact, I had a really good conversation with Dr. Dan Siegel, and I was lamenting that, you know, we'd heaped all this risk on my kid. And he said, you know, I I think you're thinking about this wrong. This could actually be a really great opportunity for you to expose your kid to some positive risk that helps sort of feed that need for more dopamine and novel experiences in adolescence. So starting from very young, talking, talking about substance use and abuse, talking about healthy behaviors. And when I say young, I'm talking like preschool and kindergarten. And in the book, I talk about the fact that this isn't necessarily a conversation around, you know, crack use. This is a conversation around healthy things like, you know, why we don't swallow the toothpaste, why we spit it out, because swallowing too much toothpaste can be bad for us or you know why we don't put the laundry detergent in our bodies why we keep it outside of our bodies or why on the instructions it says for external use only or why that medicine bottle on the cabinet has mommy's name on it and not daddy's name and should daddy take that medicine that's meant for mommy that kind of thing should you take a medicine that's prescribed for someone else well no because you may have you know, you have different bodies and you have different, you know, body sizes. All those sort of conversations are really important to have from a very young age. Research is really clear that having regular family dinners actually decreases a kid's risk for having issues with substance use and abuse. But I actually think that the idea of family dinner can be approached in a more broad way. Dinner is sort of emblematic of a time to sit down and look in each other's eyes and check in with each other and have conversations that get past that sort of surface level dialogue that we have, like, you know, how was your day? Fine, that kind of stuff. But finding opportunities to talk, either as a family, finding opportunities to get down to those deeper conversations, that's going to be really important because keeping an eye on where our kids are from sort of a mood and topic perspective is going to be really important as well. And then there's all kinds of little things that have varying amounts of evidence that can be helpful. You know, we happen to be a family that loves animals. So we started adopting, you know, more dogs because we know that dogs help lower blood pressure, help kids get a hit of oxytocin, which is a comforting hormone, and help kids learn to care for and develop empathy and care for other creatures. So there's everything from, you know, having those important conversations, making sure that your school has an evidence-based substance abuse prevention program. Only 57% of schools in this country have a substance abuse prevention program of any sort. And of that 57%, only 10% of them are evidence-based. There's an entire chapter on what schools can do. And the nice thing is, spoiler alert, 
the things that schools can do that are most effective happen to be in line with the most effective social-emotional learning programs out there. And good social-emotional learning programs have a family component as well to help guide parents towards really stuff that they can do at home that's in conjunction with what the school is doing. So that's going to be really important as well. So even though kids aren't allowed to drink, could our drinking in front of them lead to problems? And then a second question, what are some of the signs we should watch for? Research shows that kids as young as four, when they're in a home, especially one where there is substance abuse, they can differentiate between alcoholic and non-alcoholic beverages. So for anyone who says, no, 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 you're starting the conversation too early. I always remember that statistic about kids as young as four. I'd say, absolutely not. So one of the things that's been really interesting is, is that it's not about the adults around them drinking or not drinking. And it seems to be a lot more about the messaging about why we drink. And obviously, if kids are seeing the really chaotic and disorganized and troubling behaviors around substance abuse, you know, they're seeing parents be really irresponsible or they're not able to be cared for by their own parents. That's a whole other topic. But when adults are drinking around kids, think about the messaging that you're giving them. Are you saying, oh man, I had the worst day at work and in order to just I need this glass of wine. Or that conversation about like, you know, the joking, you know, mommy juice with the sippy cup top on top of the wine glass. And I just would beg parents to think really hard about the messaging that they're sending around the drinking that they're doing. Jess, tell us and discuss the physiological toll drinking and drug use can have on our young people. You know, there are all these really interesting books that are coming out right now about responsible adult drug use. And, you know, Michael Pollan with Psychedelics or Dr. Carl Hart with, he has a new book called Drug Use for Grownups. That is not what we're talking about here. There's a lot of risk factors that seem to greatly lessen, if not go away almost completely once a brain is done developing. And that doesn't happen until the early to mid 20s. Before that period between puberty and early 20s, the brain is going through massive restructuring and growth that's comparable only to what happens in the brain during zero to two, you know, when all those amazing advances are happening so quickly in a baby's brain. That's happening in adult, sorry, in adolescent brains too. And it's not just that a lot of changes are happening. It's that an adolescent brain is acutely susceptible to environmental impact, whether that's, you know, a kid being treated badly or lack of nutrition or lack of sleep, also substances. So for example, the receptors that the chemicals in pot clings onto in order to create, you know, a high in our brain are in and around the hippocampus. And the hippocampus is where we process emotional memory, especially emotional memory. And so it's no coincidence that among kids who smoke a lot of pot, not only do they have short-term memory deficits, their hippocampi are actually smaller than those in kids who don't smoke pot. So there are things that can happen on a temporary basis to just sort of mess with the chemical balance in the brain on a temporary basis. And then there are some things that are permanent. And The problem is, is that we can't go back. Once the door is closed on the cognitive development in the early 20s, we can't go back. There's no remediation that can happen. It's the brain sort of does what it's supposed to do, is set, and then we move on. And so we talk a lot about 
what drugs and alcohol did to me. It exacerbated my anxiety. It gave me really bad stomach pains. It did all kinds of terrible things to me. It it was just horrible. We also talk about the fact, we're very honest about the fact that when my husband graduated from college and didn't have a direction and he didn't have a job that he liked, he couldn't find a job in the field that he wanted. He was just sort of anchorless and wandering around and just didn't know what he wanted, was really upset with himself and didn't have a life that he wanted. And he smoked a lot of pot for about a year. And he talks about the fact that he knows for a fact that his short-term memory was impaired from the beginning of that year to the end of that year. And so we don't hide the fact that we have drunk more than our share of wine or smoked more than our share of pot. But we do talk about the very real consequences that has on us as on our brains and on our adolescent brains and on our adult brains. I think it's really important to have these conversations so that kids can understand, here's what's actually happening in your brain. Your brain is so delicate and so susceptible to damage right now. Let me explain to you what's happening in your brain and explain why all we're asking is that you delay. You delay your use until your brain is done developing. And for legality's sake, that's 21. Um, but really, if we can get them to 18, we reduce the risk of their having life, uh, having substance use disorder during their lifetime down to sort of what it is in the general population, which is about 10%. So I want to circle back to something you mentioned earlier, what our schools can do. In your opinion, what additional educational resources should we parents make sure that we watch out for at our child's high school? It's really interesting when you look at the really effective, I don't want to say just high school either, because we have to talk about elementary all the way through. If we're waiting even till middle school, we're waiting too late because if kids are going to try substances, most of them are going to start trying them during middle school. So if we're waiting till high school, we're way behind. So we got to start talking about these things way early. And the way we do that, I'm, I'm so pleased that substance abuse prevention and social emotional learning are meeting, meeting in this really fortuitous space because it is all the rage right now to have good social emotional learning programs. And we know that especially during the pandemic, one of the things that we had to pay particular attention to are kids' social emotional skills because, uh, and social emotional learning, because one of the, you know, I've, in fact, I've had to say this over and over again, right now, with what kids are facing, I'm a little less worried about their ability to add two fractions together than some of their social emotional skills and what they stood to lose this past year. So it's all the rage right now for social emotional programs just generally, but I, I'm hoping, especially in reaction to the pandemic. And the great news is that at the heart of all of the most evidence-based, proven, effective substance abuse prevention programs are really good SEL programs. So that's a great starting place. The other thing we need to know is that it would seem like we'd need to get, you know, some of the teachers and maybe the instructors of these social emotional learning programs and especially the health components. We need to have really dedicated, you know, teachers on board. It's much more complicated than that. And what we need is to have the school leadership as invested as possible. Superintendents, even superintendents who hardly ever step foot in a school, people that the kids hardly ever see face to face, when those people, the superintendents and principals, are all in on the substance abuse prevention programs, those programs end up being much more 
effective. So we have to have buy-in from the top. When an administrator or a superintendent is paying just lip service to a program, everyone seems to know, right? Teachers and the school community in general, people kind of know what is really important in a school community and what is not. And substance abuse prevention programs are no exception to that rule. So we need to have leadership from the top talking about how important this program is and how much you believe in this program. And when you look at how much money we have to invest in a program and then how much it pays off later on, these programs, really good SEL programs, pay off big in the long run in terms of helping kids deal with all kinds of, you know, mental health issues that they may have to deal with down the road that if we can get in there early with some great SEL work, then we can sort of get there early and make it so they don't ever end up having to be referred out for treatment. So I list in the book, all of the places you can go to see whether the program you're using in your school or whether the program that's been deployed in your school actually has any evidence behind it. Because there's a difference between a program saying, hey, look, we're effective because we know that these things we're using have been effective in other places and an objective third party looking at it and saying, oh, but there's no evidence that actually these things in this context work. So in the book, in the chapter on education, I give really clear places to look, places to go to evaluate the programs that your school is using and what kids should be getting every step of the way. Here's what really good substance abuse programs are doing in elementary school. Here's what they're doing in middle school. Here's what they're doing in high school. And then, of course, I there's a chapter that goes into the college years as well. So you give all these great ways young people can say no without losing their cool points. Do you see these talking points as an important step in fighting this uphill battle we're fighting with the illusion of being cool and everybody's doing it? Part of what you're referring to is, and the reason the word inocul- inoculation is in the title is because of the concept of inoculation theory. And sometimes part of that is refusal skills. The idea you were talking about, you know, things that you can, essentially ammunition you can give kids in order to avoid having to even say no in the first place. So for example, for me, even as an adult, you know, I'm 50 years old and I have to go to every dinner party or cocktail party or, or whatever, just knowing I have an exit strategy in mind. That just gives me a sense of control. It makes me feel like, and my husband's in on it, and we sort of know the, sim- the sign that we sort of throw each other in order to make it clear that, you know, I think it's time to go. I'm just feeling like it's time. And Some of the things that we can do for kids, some of them are so simple. When I started talking to experts and thinking about the ammunition that we can give kids, I mean, there's little things like, you know, I have to get up early early in the morning for a track practice, or I'm taking an antibiotic right now and I'm not allowed to drink right now, or just really small things. Frankly, my son used to throw me under the bus and say, you know, my mom is an alcoholic and, you know, I'd rather just not. So there's all kinds of things you can do like that. But here's the cool thing about inoculation theory. Inoculation theory is all about giving kids the rebuttal to the common, oh, come on, it's no big deal, everybody's doing it kind of messaging. So for example, if someone says to your eighth grade kid, you know, everybody's doing it, your kid can say, meaning alcohol, it turns out everybody isn't doing it. Only, you know, 24% of eighth graders admit that they've had alcohol by the end of eighth grade. And not that they have to repeat that verbatim, but that they know that in their head, that the answer is no, it turns out everybody's not doing it. The cool thing about inoculation theory is number one, when our kids have ammunition just in their back pocket about things they can say, 
they feel empowered. They have this sense of what's called self-efficacy, that they have the tools needed in order to take an action and that will keep them safe. It also increases the chances that they will actually in practice use that refusal and it increases the likelihood that they will talk to their parents about that refusal. So it increases their safety, it increases the chances they will actually say no, and it increases the chances that they will talk to us about it. And fourth, it generalizes. When we give kids ammunition to say no to risky behaviors, whether that's speeding, being in a car with a drunk driver, sex before they're ready. When we give kids the ability to refuse those things or to say no to those things, and I try not to say say no to because it sounds like I'm saying just say no, which is not at all the message. It generalizes to other risky behaviors. The research on inoculation theory is that when we help kids protect themselves against one risky behavior, it actually generalizes to other risky behaviors. So those four things, I am all in on inoculation theory. And I think giving the more power we give to kids, and you know, this is for anyone who knows my work, empowering kids is like at the core of everything I'm talking about and everything I write about. Empowering kids increases their self-efficacy. It increases the chances they're going to self-advocate and increases the chances that they'll talk to us about it. So let's do it. Well, tell our guests where they can find you and your books. Oh, absolutely. So I'm always at jessicalahey.com. You can find out where I'm speaking and what's going on. I have a blog there. You can subscribe. And actually, if you subscribe there, there's all kinds of fun bonus content that's going to come out. I'm at Jess Leahy over at at Twitter, and I'm at Teacher Leahy over on Instagram. So what's your soundbite for those listening out there today? This could never happen to my family. I I don't need to read this book. Well, so substance abuse does not care what gender, ethnicity, how rich we are, how poor we are. It really just comes down to a a series of factors that make us more susceptible. And the big message I would like to point out is that just as we would never, ever consider giving our zero to two-year-old something to drink, the brains are just as sensitive during adolescence. And so the message has to be delay, delay, delay. With each passing year, the statistics show that the chances of having a substance abuse disorder during your lifetime go down with each progressive year in you know when you're in eighth grade it's above 50 percent but if you can just make it to 18 we can get it all the way down to 10 percent which is really where we are with the general population and substance abuse is preventable i mean honestly i went into writing this book because i wanted to know what that meant in a very sort of granular way. And I come out of this book saying, absolutely, heck yeah, substance abuse is preventable. We just have to be talking about it early. We have to delay, delay, delay. And we have to question some of our assumptions about how many kids drink, why they drink, and why we drink. I think coming at it from all of those angles is really going to help. Thank you so much for joining us today. This was a hugely important topic for us. Also, I've watched some of your YouTube videos on your channel, and I loved them. I'll definitely be watching more. And I encourage our listeners to check them out, Jessica Leahy, on YouTube. I heard you describe this book, and I'm paraphrasing, that it's a reference for anyone, parents, coaches, teachers, anyone who cares about children and raising healthy children who can go through this world without needing to turn to substances. That's how important this book is. So I encourage our listeners to go and find it, read it. Jess, thank you so much for being here. We appreciate you so much. Listeners, I look forward to listening, learning, laughing our way through this crazy thing we call parenting together on our next episode of The Count of Three. 
Thanks again for joining Texas PTA's podcast. You can join PTA anytime and from anywhere at joinpta.org. Do you have a fun or touching parenting story of your own? Share it with us for a chance to land on a future episode. Just call 512-387-1909 and leave a voicemail including your name, city, and short story. We can't wait to hear from you. And join the Count of Three community on Instagram at Count of Three Pod. That's at Count of Three Pod for news on episodes, content, and just a place to laugh our way through this crazy thing called parenting. <laughs>